0: Welcome to the G3 Podcast, a weekly podcast focused on the Christian life where we examine doctrinal and cultural issues that impact God's church. My name is Josh Bice, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jeremy Well, Welcome back to the G3 Podcast. If you're listening today, this is uh, Josh Bice again, but I'm I'm solo today. I do not have Jeremy with me, as he is currently prepping for uh, the opening of the Shepherds Conference next week. But today, as you well know, the the heartbeat of G3 Conference and everything that we do with G3 is to make much of Christ through his church, and specifically through the local church. We like to point people to the importance and the necessity of being engaged in the life of a local church. And so as we think in terms of local church ministry, and as we think about opportunities to get engaged through various different overlapping ministry, uh, so like through denominational uh, engagement and, and that type of thing we like to sometimes bring people on as a special guest to talk about that sort of thing, how they lead in that area or how they engage and how they lead their local church through uh, some sort of a a ministry overlap or some uh, means of engaging with other like-minded churches within a, a specific network or a denominational group like the Southern Baptist Convention. And so today we have the privilege to have Dr. Tom Askell, who is a friend in in the ministry, who is a faithful pastor in Florida, and has been a part of the Southern Baptist Convention for many years. And so it is my privilege to welcome today to the G3 podcast, Dr. Tom Askell.
1: Well, thank you so much, Josh. It's good to be with you.
0: Well, it's a privilege to have you with us today, Tom. Tell our listeners, in case they haven't yet learned who you are, you've preached uh, in the G3 conference on a a number of occasions, but I would like for them just to get a little bit of a background as to who you are and your context of ministry.
1: Yeah, well, thanks. I'm uh, the grandson of a Syrian immigrant, native Texan. I got married to my wife, Donna, nearly 40 years ago. We have six kids. Uh, 11 grandkids, two on the way. I started pastoring uh, when I was a senior in college at Texas A&M. Went to Southwestern Seminary, did an MDiv, PhD there. I served a church in Dallas while I was doing most of that work and moved to Cape Coral, Florida in 1986, where I've been the pastor of Grace Baptist Church uh, ever since. I'm also the president of Founders Ministries. Founders began in 1982, there was a group of seven guys that we were all inerrantists. That was the early years of the conservative resurgence in the SBC. And yet, we knew that as important as inerrancy is, it's not enough. And we're going to have to deal with the content of scripture and application of the teaching of scripture. So, we began what was then known as the Founders Conference, that's developed into Founders Ministries. Uh, we have a variety of ministries, uh, we teach all kinds of things on our Website. We have tons of material there. We have a podcast, The Sword and the Trowel, that Jared Longshore and I do. And uh, we teach courses. I think, I forget how many courses we've got, but courses that you can get credit from other seminaries by taking through Founders. Uh, We have conferences. uh, We do Bible studies and Bible helps for Lifeway Sunday School curriculum for adults Um, and just a, a number of other things. But Founders has developed over all those years, and we're just engaged in trying to see local churches become more and more conformed to Scripture, what we say, biblically reformed, and the gospel of Jesus recovered, that is, to be given its pride of place in the life
0: of churches. Fantastic. Tom, what did you, uh, as far as your PhD, what was it centered on, and what did you study at that time?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's kind of a funny story, uh, even getting into it. I, I applied for the Ph.D. program 15 minutes before the deadline was over. Um, I kind of had my fill of of uh, studies on a formal level in one sense, and yet I really did want to learn. Uh, I had a couple of professors who encouraged me to consider doing it. So I applied at Southwestern Seminary and one other seminary that I basically decided I wasn't going to go to and wanted to study systematic theology uh, and was able to do that. I completed a degree in systematic theology with an emphasis in Baptist theology. So my dissertation was on a comparison of John Gill and Andrew Fuller, to English Baptists, and their views of federalism or federal theology. So uh, it put me in an area that I think is important to study and was personally beneficial for me uh, I, I enjoyed it immensely in terms of the research of those two men and the era of the 18th, and 19th century Baptist movement.
0: So, for those that might be listening again, the G3 conference and, and everything surrounding G3 Ministries is is really not just Southern Baptist. Although I am a Southern right. Baptist pastor and you are as well, we have a number of different uh, backgrounds that come and are at the G3. Uh, Each year, Uh, but we do have a number of Southern Baptist churches and pastors who are there and professors who come. So for those that might not know very much about the Southern Baptist Convention, give us just a brief understanding of what the Southern Baptist Convention is and what is the purpose of it.
1: Well, yeah, the SBC is uh, a convention of churches. Number one, it's not a church. Sometimes those that are outside the SBC, even sometimes those in the SBC will speak of the Southern Baptist Church. Well, there is no the Southern Baptist Church. There are Southern Baptist churches that have associated together in voluntary cooperation that we call a convention, the Southern Baptist Convention of churches. It was formed to uh, cooperate, elicit, and, and support each other in mission endeavors, theological education endeavors, benevolence endeavors, under the, the broad understanding of, of the Lordship of Christ. And a variety of things have extended from that initial uh, purpose, but it's a missions cooperating organization first and foremost. And, and for that, in that sense, it's a parachurch organization. It's not a church, but it's a way for churches to unite together. So the, the SBC has developed a lot of entities and organizations and institutions, most notably, we have six seminaries we have the ethics and religious liberty commission we have the international mission board and we have the north american mission board lifeway is also under there and there's some auxiliary groups that affiliate or we we have uh, deep connections with as well but those are the biggies and our cooperative giving when churches unite our funds together through the cooperative program that began in 1925, we were able to support all these agencies and institutions and service missionaries, both in North America and around the world. So in in one sense, it's an ingenious idea. Uh, In another sense, it's a dangerous idea because you can become disconnected as a church and just give your money and never think about, again, where that money goes, what that money is supporting, what the entities and institutions are doing. But what I like to say to pastors, especially of churches, but also just Southern Baptists in general, is that the entities, the institutions, the agencies belong to the churches. The Southern Baptist Convention is the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. And what we have voluntarily cooperated to build together belongs to the
0: churches and not the other way around. So the president of, say, one of the seminaries or the president of the actual Southern Baptist Convention has no means of authority over your local church?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, there's a difference in those two uh, positions. The president of an uh, institution like a seminary or one of our entities uh, actually works for the churches. So, you know, I wouldn't just say he's an employee, but it's basically that the churches. Uh, hold him accountable. So that person, as Jason Allen, the president of Midwestern Seminary, said recently in an article that he's accountable to his board of trustees directly. But beyond that, he's accountable to Southern Baptist churches. That's the right way for all entity heads and uh, presidents of institutions to think. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention is a voluntary position. Uh, He gets elected for a one-year term And then typically a second year is given just mostly by way of formality and tradition. That's been challenged some, but not in recent years. But that position doesn't have much authority. The significance of that position is that it is a bully pulpit. And so the president of the SBC speaks, even when he's not trying to speak for the convention, the things he says and does are held up as, look what the president of the Southern Baptist Convention has done or says. But he does get to appoint the committee on committees every year, which is a very important appointment uh, privilege and responsibility because that committee then appoints a committee on nominations. Those That committee on nominations then uh, is responsible for recommending trustees to all of our entities and agencies that get voted on each year in the uh, annual meeting. And that's on a rotating basis. So it's not a full slate of all trustees on all entities every year but it's a rotating amount from each one and then he also appoints the teller committee and he presides over the annual meeting so officially i think he's ex officio on all of the on the executive committee and and maybe on the entities trustees as well but he has a an opportunity to speak to call attention to issues to represent the SBC, but it's a voluntary position. And usually in almost uh, in recent years, except for Paige Patterson, and I forget the year he served or two years, it's been pastors who have held this position in the in recent decades.
0: So although this uh, president doesn't have any authority over the local church, it is a very strategic and an important position because it does allow for that individual to speak into the life of the churches that make up the convention, correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, we've seen that with J.D. Greer. Uh, in some ways, I you know, I, I sympathize uh, with him or for him because he, he can just be doing something in his own church and that gets blasted out over the internet to the whole world when he may have been thinking only about his own congregation. But then at other times, he issues press statements and he makes official declarations as the president of the SBC. But, but what he says and what he does has no authority over local churches. That's one of the things that some of our uh, more independent brethren don't always understand or appreciate or even believe when it's explained to them. But every Southern Baptist church is an independent church. There's nobody that dictates to a Southern Baptist church as to what they must be or do. It's a voluntary cooperation, and the, the parameters of that cooperation are set such that it's uh, being in general agreement with the Baptist faith and message and being friendly cooperation and, and have uh, a minimal financial commitment to some Southern Baptist entity. So th-
0: th- those are not real narrow parameters. Yeah, so how you've explained this, uh, again, takes us back to the day in which uh, Paul Pressler and Paige Patterson had their famous meeting there at the cafe, and they talked about the ways in which they would lead or at least what would be a possibility as far as leading a resurgence among the, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention during a, a very dark days when there was theological liberalism that was reigning supreme in, in our seminaries and educating and sending out into the grassroots local church context uh, pastors and missionaries who would be leading there. So when we think about the importance of the president uh, being elected, to then turn over those seats of of authority and and leadership on a seminary level, it's critically important because that will then determine who serves as president of those seminaries who would then educate or hire and fire faculty members to educate for the local church context. So it's it's a very important position. So as we think about that, And as we talked uh, earlier in your introduction, you mentioned, again, the founding of Founders Ministries uh, in the specific year and all of that. So take me back to the conservative resurgence days. What is one of the most memorable experiences that you can remember during that time of the conservative resurgence, maybe an annual meeting, uh, some sort of a memory that sticks out in your your mind?
1: Yeah, well, there's several. Uh, For me personally... It would be uh, my first year at Southwestern Seminary. I actually enrolled in Southwestern in the, the summer of 1979. I just graduated from Texas A&M and had listened to a professor from Su- Southwestern Seminary who was interim pastor of the church that my wife and I were married in. I was pastor in another church. We didn't have Sunday night services. And so I would go over and uh, worship on Sunday nights in this church and the, the interim was leon Macbeth, who was the chair of the history department at southwestern and all spring he talked about this new effort to overthrow the seminaries and if adrian rogers was elected in houston then he would be fired and all of his colleagues would be fired and southwestern seminary would become a bible college and so i was up in arms man i was mad about that and so when i showed up at southwestern seminary my first professor that summer for a church history course was tom nettles And I went to him and I said, Dr. Nettles, I want you to know, I understand what's going on. I'm taking messengers from my church to Houston. We're going to vote against this Adrian Rogers guy, and I'm not going to let you lose your job. And he kind of cocked his head and looked at me. He said, who have you been talking to? (laughs) So I explained to him my background on the thinking, and he closed his door and began educating me on these issues. So that was pivotal right there at the outset, even before the election of Adrian Rogers. I think denominationally on the broader scale, it'd be the 1985 convention in Dallas, Texas, where I forget the exact number, but I believe it's over 45,000 messengers came together. It was pivotal and the downtown Dallas got locked up. I mean, people were upset with the Baptists because they couldn't get to work. They couldn't go out to eat. Um, and it, it was crowded. Messengers came from all over the nation in our churches. They were sleeping in their cars in order to be there to, to vote. And it was at the pastors' conference prior to the convention. W. A. Criswell preached his famous sermon. I think the title of it was "What Shall We Be," and uh, he preached on the authority of Scripture. And it was—I
0: mean, it was palpable. Was it whether we live or whether we die? Oh, is that is that? Yeah, the name that was it? It. yeah, that was
1: it. Whether we live or whether we die—that was the sermon. Uh, oh my! I mean, he—it it was uh, is mesmerizing. And I was sitting in an area right behind a a group of leaders in the moderate faction of the convention, Cecil Sherman, Bill Sherman, his brother, and they were visibly upset at that message. And then in the convention itself, um, there was a lot of uh, a rancor that took place. and, And that was a pivotal moment that signaled in my mind, okay, this movement is not going away. In fact, it's gaining steam. And by God's grace, we may well see our institutions and agencies return to a solid commitment to the authority
0: of God's word. Wow. Really good stuff. If if you're listening to this podcast, you would like to maybe watch that sermon just to get an idea of what was happening, the climate in which... uh, Dr. Askell is speaking to, you can find that sermon on YouTube. If you just search for W.A. Criswell sermon, whether we live or whether we die, you can find it there and watch it. But mm-hmm. uh, Tom, as we think about the current landscape of the Southern Baptist Convention, again, just me personally, I, I serve in a church that's 178 years old. We are affiliated with The Southern Baptist Convention. We predate the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm -hmm. I have personally been a member of three local churches in my lifetime, and I've pastored all three of those churches. I grew up here at this church in this context, went away to Southern Seminary, pastored in Kentucky. Uh, After graduation in my doctoral program, I served a church in Middle Tennessee, Southern Baptist Church and then came back home to serve my home church again so i mm-hmm. have been a southern baptist my whole life but if i'm really honest with you um i am you know very discouraged with a lot of the leadership and a lot of the things that i'm seeing as far as the direction of the southern baptist convention in recent years um as i look at the landscape of the sbc i see uh, again the debacle this year with the pastors conference announcement Mm -hmm. Uh, I look at last year, again, sitting with you and other messengers there on the floor in Birmingham when we adopted a resolution now known as Resolution 9. Uh, When we think about the tactics that are being employed today and and a lot of the things that we're seeing and a lot of the direction that we're headed as far as a convention, what would you say are some of the, the biggest concerns or the issues that you see facing Southern Baptists in 2020.
1: Boy, yeah, there's a lot of them, and trying to boil it down and figure out what what's at the base of all this, I'm not sure I know exactly, except that I'm convinced that Southern Baptists, by and large, have functioned without a healthy dose of the fear of God. Uh, we just, you know, we, we all say we're an errantist. We all say we believe the Baptist faith and message and we sign all the documents. But then we live as if there's no God. And I think we can see that in our churches, how we operate in our churches very often. I mean, just this, as you mentioned, the debacle with the, the pastor's conference, looking at some of the ways the the themes of that church, the Church by the Glades, has operated over the last many years. In using things like Game of Thrones for a theme. I I don't know Pastor David Hughes, and and I'm, you know, I'm not trying this is not personal, but as I watched, I couldn't watch even some of those videos of their church services. I would not let my wife sit in a service with some of the things that were going on sexually on the stage. It's paganism. It's paganism. I'm not calling him a pagan. I'm not saying he doesn't know Jesus. I'm not saying he doesn't believe the gospel. I'm saying that the way that worship was presented is, has more in common with godless paganism than it does with the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so whenever you have that in our midst, and not, not just tolerated, but then uh, through the pastor's conference effort to be platformed by inviting the pastor who has operated that way to speak to the pastors of Southern Medicine Convention, it is a commentary on how deep and widespread our problems are. And I'm just thinking, do you fear God? Do you really fear God? Do you believe that he's a consuming fire and that he's to be worshiped in holiness? I, and it, so I think we need to have some fundamental conversations. We can't assume the foundation anymore. Along with that, I talk to pastors all the time. I was with two or, or 300 pastors, most of them Southern Baptist last weekend. And overwhelmingly, the, the questions that I got had to do with frustration and leadership, just pretty much what you articulated. I think there's a disconnect between many Southern Baptist leaders and regular Southern Baptists, Southern Baptist churches, Southern Baptist pastors. We had a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention recently on Twitter speak about the little people with big mouths and just dismissing a whole category of Southern Baptists because of complaints and concerns being raised about one of our agencies and institutions. And I get it. You know, he's loyal. He wants to defend his friends. But I fear that what's going on in the SBC today is the same thing we've seen happen in our nation. Forget the political divisions and the political parties we have in our nation. There's an elitism that exists inside the beltway of Washington, D.C. that's way out of touch with just common Americans. And I fear that's going on in the SBC, too. There's a, It's been put this way to me. We have an SBC elite that seem like they've got to operate on the basis of the 11th commandment. You don't ever criticize another SBC entity or leader. And as a result, the 10 commandments sometimes get trodden underfoot in an effort to obey the 11th commandment. And I think churches and pastors are tired of it. I am. And I hear that more and more that we have somehow got to call our institutions and agencies back to accountability to the churches that own them.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah that's a really good point, so uh back to the earlier discussion when you were speaking about the fact that these these leaders are actually working for the churches that make up this convention that's really refreshing to hear because again, a lot of people do look uh down at sort of the 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 average Southern Baptist that's sitting on their front mm-hmm. porch you know that that send their their money through their local church to the state convention and through the national convention. And those individuals sort of look down on those people or speak down to the, the pastor that might, you know, be pastoring faithfully, you know, 75 people in a rural location someplace. And I mm-hmm. think it's, it's time for people to understand that the convention operates because of those small church pastors and because of the faithfulness of those members that make up that church. And so we need to have, you know, a, again, a, a, a resurgence of understanding what the convention is and what's the purpose of the convention. And again, as you sort of gave an analogy and a comparison of of national politics to the state of the SBC, I think that there's a, a correlation there, and I think that we need leaders that will lead with that understanding, respecting the local church instead of disrespecting the, the local unknown pastor that's out there serving faithfully.
1: Yeah, I agree. And again, I'm hearing that more and more. It's uh, everywhere I go. That's the cry. And I, I forget the statistics. I put them up on Twitter the other day, but I think it's well over two thirds of Southern Baptist churches have less than a hundred people in attendance. I mean, it's just a, it's a great majority of our churches are small. We're a large convention of small churches. Uh, we do have our larger churches, and many of those larger churches are wonderful and praise God for them. But to suggest that the smaller churches are insignificant and that the people who are in those churches and pastors who serve those churches are insignificant or or shouldn't have a voice or can be ignored, um, well, it's that's that's not right. It's not godly. It's not biblical. And I think that in terms of our convention, it is incredibly unhealthy because more and more pastors and churches are waking up to the fact that, yes, we pay the bills and yet we continue to be dismissed. We, you know, it, it's frustrating. And we've seen it happen at the annual convention, at least the last two years. And I can think of years prior to that, where an agency head was asked a direct question and then just dismissed it. And refuse to answer it simply and plainly. And I'm thinking, how can that, you can't continue an organization where that type of disrespect is normalized?
0: Yeah. So, on that note, there's ongoing talk among the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, again, of distrust among leadership. And they're starting to wake up to this. So, there's talk now that there is a connection between a drop in Giving to the cooperative program or to specific entities as a result of a lack of trust for that leadership. Mm-hmm. So, what would you say to that? And do you think that that's that that's true? And again, what would you say uh, to the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention entities as far as regaining that trust? What would you say to that?
1: Yeah, well, I, I would say it's definitely true. I, I've had a state. Uh, executive director uh, tell me directly, personally, face-to-face, that their convention has lost, I think it was $1.3 million in giving through the cooperative program because of churches giving in order to not have to fund the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And he was lamenting it. I mean, he wasn't, he was just saying, this is a fact. And I have heard that over the whole convention that that figure could be as high as $8 million. So when the executive committee decided to study, to have a task force to study why that's going on, I think that's legit. What I would say to the entity heads and executives that lead our institutions and agencies is you cannot continue to ignore and dismiss the churches and expect the churches to continue to pay you to do so. And it's simple. Where you have messed up, acknowledge it. Admit it. Man, we have a Savior. So repent of sin, trust Christ, get up, start over. I'm not looking for anybody's head. I don't think most Southern Baptists are. We want to see accountability. We want to see genuine cooperation in moving together to try to establish the, the, fulfill the mission that Christ has given to us.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Well, let me press you a bit on on a, a very controversial issue. As you well know, I have been outspoken, as, uh, as you have, on issues related to social justice. And I believe that social justice in and of itself is a very difficult thing to just give a succinct definition to. But nevertheless, there are many different veins or tributaries, you might say, or sort of uh, arms to the social justice agenda. It's very complex and it's multi layered in many ways. But as we think about Resolution Nine and the whole idea of, of using analytical tools of you know, the, the world, such as critical race theory and intersectionality, as a means of addressing or assessing or analyzing our communities so as to engage in gospel ministry. Again, I I have a serious problem with that. I've been outspoken about that. I know you have as well. But what do you think we should do? What should the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention do at the annual meeting in Orlando this summer as it pertains to Resolution 9? Should we rescind it? Should we stand against it? And what should be the the movement moving forward?
1: Yes, well, uh, I do think we should rescind it. I've written an article that you can find at founders.org. Just with that title, rescind Resolution 9. We need to, in that article, I quote Robert's Rules of Order, which is the parliamentary authority that we operate by in our annual meetings. And there's a whole paragraph that I quote that shows that this is a legitimate move. Now, I've made it known I plan to go to a microphone and make a motion to rescind Resolution 9. I've been told that there are already efforts underway to make sure that motion never uh, gets to a point of voting. And you know, maybe that'll happen. If so, then it'll just further expose some of the problems that we have. Resolution 9 is problematic in two significant ways. One, the content of what it says is, is bad. There, it says some good things. There's some good sentences in Resolution 9, but the whole content overall is bad. And then secondly, the process whereby that resolution came, was submitted to the committee, rewritten by the committee to say the opposite, and then submitted to the to the convention by the committee at the last hour first of all to attempt to bundle it with other resolutions so we voted up and down on four or five resolutions altogether uh, and then we didn't have time to de- to debate certain aspects of it because it was the last session all of that was just unwise the resolutions committee was unwise in how they handled it they should never brought it out and seeing the controversy over it they should have withdrawn it and been Willing to say, look, we're not ready to vote on this. So, yes, it needs to be rescinded. I hope Southern Baptists will show up in Orlando prepared to rescind it. I know that many are because I've received hundreds of contacts uh, from pastors all over the, the convention saying they're coming. I, I bet you I've had twenty different pastors tell me they've never been to a Southern Baptist convention and they're coming. They're bringing messengers with them for that expressed purpose to rescind Resolution Nine. So, it needs to be rescinded. The critical race theory, intersectionality, are not simply analytical tools. They are tools that have embedded within them ideologies and and approaches for deconstructing things that are as because they are inherently wicked based upon oppressive power structures. So to say, well, but we can use some good things in them. Read again. We just released an article yesterday by Time and Klein on intersectionality cannot be an analytical tool merely. And then the whole By What Standard uh, film that Founders produced addresses
0: this and explains it as well. So I'd encourage folks to go check out those resources for more information. As we think about those very tools and as we think about the issue of social justice, uh, we've heard this statement that you and I both were involved and engaged in as far as the development of it, the statement on social justice and the gospel. It is now being referred to as the Dallas Statement in short, or as the MacArthur Statement, and as we are very grateful to have had Dr. MacArthur's leadership and engagement within that statement, uh, it's really not the Dallas Statement. It, It actually has a name. The official name is the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel, and it's not the MacArthur Statement because it was not really written by or just handed down to us by Dr. MacArthur. It was really brought to pass as a result of really the history of it. There's a, there's a statement there uh, on the website that talks about the history and formation of that statement. But it really was birthed out of a desire of a group of pastors. And I remember sitting mm-hmm. and watching the MLK50 conference, which was produced and sponsored by the ERLC and Southeastern Seminary and uh, the Gospel Coalition, Uh, as a group of ministries, putting on uh, a conference for evangelicals, which was laced with a lot of social justice um, uh, propaganda, is what I would call it. Uh, It was a Mm -hmm. lot of stuff that, uh, in some ways, you might say some of those guys had some, some genuine intention to speak to some issues that we are genuinely facing today. But the tools and the methods that they were using and bringing to the table was extremely problematic. As you mentioned a moment ago, the deconstruction agenda was very much at play in that conference. I remember sitting there and and watching this and listening. I, I was astounded. I started calling friends and saying, we need to maybe get a group of guys together in a room where we can address this issue and talk about what in the world is happening within evangelicalism. And so we called this meeting together. We did meet in Dallas and we had a group of us around the table. You were there. I was there. And as I sought to lead that meeting, I talked about let's let's for the first half of the day, let's gripe and complain. Let's read social media, post, let's listen to sermon clips and we had a collection of those things, and let's gripe about these things for the first half of the day. Then after lunch, let's really try to drive towards a solution. So it was during that after lunch session that we put on the table this idea of developing the statement on social justice and the gospel. And really unanimously around the room, we sort of put that in your lap and said, Tom, we want you to do the heavy lifting on this, and we're going to help edit it. We're going to help Engage and give opinion, and maybe even engage in certain uh, articles that are going to be written. But, but it was you took the leadership in that. So, I would just like for you to speak to that just briefly to help uh, those that might be listening to this podcast understand how we arrived at that statement.
1: Yeah, well, um, it was an important effort, and I, I commend you for putting together that meeting in Dallas and. Uh, I was grateful to get the phone call from you because I'd watched MLK 2 and it was, had the exact same kind of visceral as well as cerebral response to it. So sitting around the table in Dallas, it became apparent that, man, we I'd never been in the room with those people uh, at all that collection together. I doubt we'll all be together like that ever again. And I met some people for the first time face-to-face that I'd just known about at a distance. And to hear that we were all seeing the same thing from the same perspective was so refreshing, so encouraging. So the, the, the statement, we, I can't remember if we'd agreed in Dallas or not that it should be affirmations and denials. I think we maybe did do that, or at least in conversations afterwards, that became apparent. And uh, so I, I came back to Cape Coral, and, and I was in touch with you and a couple of the other guys that had been in the room thinking through, okay, how do we do this? What should we do? What are the key issues? And just try to think through where we see the fight raging and where we see it going. And what does the Bible say about those key areas? And how is the Bible being ignored or undermined in the way that this fight's being conducted, the way this movement is being pushed forward? And so that framed the thinking of what particular articles to come up with. And then you know, writing them out, rewriting them, and I forget. I think we had maybe ten or 15, ten or twelve, something like that, to begin with, and sent it around to everybody in the room. And it was a very much a collaborative effort. I don't want to suggest I did the whole thing. Uh, I got the ball rolling on it, and it was through give and take and debate. We had some really good debates, and um, I've had people who say, "Man, you know, why did you say it this way rather than that way?" My response has been, this is not a confession of faith. This is a consensus document. And if I were writing a confession of faith, I'd write it in a way that a bunch of other folks wouldn't agree with. And that's you know because I'm writing it for me. And that would be true of others in the room as well. But we want to define what can we agree on? What do we all see, though we have our own peculiar uh, understandings of key uh, points within these bigger issues? What can we all stand together and say, yes, this is what the word says, this is what's going on. This is the threat to what the word says about that particular issue. And this is how we must defend and stand together to, to affirm what the word says on those issues. And I, I think God helped us. I mean, I look at the statement I've gone back maybe a month or two ago, reread it. And uh, you know, there are things that maybe we could say differently. I would not deny that at all. I wish maybe we'd been a little more careful or in light of some further developments uh, we could refine, but I believe God really helped us. I think it's a good state, but I'd sign it again today and I'd issue it again today. So I'm delighted that God uh, enabled us to do that. I think the response has indicated that we hit a chord and that a lot of people were looking for something like this that we could rally around.
0: Yeah, that's very good, Tom. So if you're listening to this, you want to find out more information about the statement on social justice and the gospel, you can find more information at statementonsocialjustice.com. We would encourage you to read that statement in full. And then if you have not yet signed it, we would encourage you to sign it. There have been some uh, 12,000 or more people who have signed the statement. So we would encourage you to sign that statement as well. Tom, as we think again about the context of the SBC as we think about uh, these issues that we're talking about, uh, through the years, I have heard as a Southern Baptist convention pastor at annual meetings, I have heard the Southern Baptist convention referred to by the analogy of, of a battleship versus a speedboat. So when you complain about things, as far as the big tent of the SBC, um, And and you want to see change, you want to see improvement, you want to see the health of the convention and our efforts to cooperate together for the purpose of missions and education. We want to see the health strengthened, but yet we'll hear leaders make statements like, well, you know, you can't expect the Southern Baptist Convention to change direction overnight. These things take, it, it takes time, it takes years, so just be patient and and so i've done that and i've done that for decades now and and you've done that for longer than me and so when i continue to hear that sort of line given to me i start to get a little bit impatient like okay i can say that this thing takes a little bit of time when you have a convention that's this large but certainly we should say that over the course of years maybe even five or ten or twenty years we should see some measurable change so should we be concerned with just hearing that statement and then thinking, okay, we just need to go back and sit down and, and expect this thing to just to take a long time to develop? Or should we actually see sh- some measurable change uh, in the positive direction? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, well, if, if in the Christian life, if you're not going forward, you're going backward. And that's true, I think, in the association of churches. It's true in the SBC. And yeah, I'll grant, there's a lot of moving parts to the Southern Baptist Convention. And so I'm willing to be patient, but my bigger concern is trajectory. Which way are we going? And what I fear, what I I believe I'm seeing over the last few years is retrograde. I, I think that we got off the path of moving toward greater health, which I would argue did happen over the last part of the 20th century when we fought the battles for the inerrancy of scripture and we were moving toward greater health, greater submission to the authority, recognition of at least, and and submission to the authority of scripture. But what seems to be happening in the last five or six years is a resurrection of, of pragmatism that is trumping the submission to the authority of scripture. And whenever you raise questions about it, you're treated as a troublemaker, you're dismissed as being a little person, or uh, you're just ignored. And that's not healthy. And, and so if the trajectory is bad, I don't care how fast or slow you're going. I'm standing against it. If the trajectory is good and slow, well, I want to encourage it to go faster. And it, and what I fear today is that we're going the wrong way. I, I think we've made some bad decisions Some of our leaders have uh, not been helpful in their failure to stand up and address some issues that they're capable of addressing and have let some things go and even defended some things that there is no biblical defense for that has put us on a bad course that uh, it's got to be corrected. I I don't think a lot of Southern Baptists are willing to go the way that some of our leaders are signaling they want us to go.
0: Okay, so on that note, when you talk about the rise of pragmatism, we've we've heard this this line over and over and over again. I've sat in the uh, SBC Pastors Conference numerous years. I've heard pastors that have been invited to speak in that conference make this statement. Um, We as the Southern Baptist Convention have won the war on inerrancy, but we have lost the war on sufficiency. Now, when I've heard that statement made— I have watched the room and I've seen many pastors and those messengers of the SBC seated there nodding in agreement with that or an mm. echo of amen in the room. But yet it's almost as if that's just become a normative thing. In other words, when I step back and I just think, if I try to look at the SBC from, say, outside of the convention, and I hear a statement like that, and I hear it repeated over and over and over again, year by year, yet almost as a normative thing rather than something that embarrasses us, uh, I think, well, how long will it be before we actually do something about it? And so what do you think about that statement just being continuously repeated, and yet it seems to be a normative thing?
1: Yeah, I've heard the same thing, Josh, and you know, it's frustrating to me as well. And what I've come to uh, begin to say more and more is that a lot of people's commitment to inerrancy seems to be merely theoretical. They're theoretical inerrantists. So in the ivory tower, they'll sign the document. But when it comes down to the church and how a church is to live and how we're to operate in the world, uh, they're unwilling to do that. They uh, will just carry on as if the Bible, you know, is, uh, is there to be used when it's uh, beneficial for their greater purposes, uh, uh, greater practical purposes. So theoretical inerrancy is killing us because I believe that sufficiency is a necessary corollary to inerrancy. So if you really are an inerrantist, then you will be committed to sufficiency. That doesn't mean you're going to work it out uh, immediately, as rigorously as you ought to. We all are on that journey, but you will not simply dismiss it and say, oh, well, yeah, you know, we are inerrantists, but you know we haven't gotten sufficiency. Maybe one day we'll get that. No, you really don't have inerrancy if you're not committed to sufficiency. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? And mm-hmm. if we're not willing to submit to Scripture, what difference does it make if we call ourselves uh, committed to the inerrancy of that Scripture?
0: Yeah. Very good point. Well, we've talked a lot today in this conversation, Tom, about some of the negative things about the Southern Baptist Convention. So what would you say to maybe encourage pastors to come to the convention this year if they don't typically attend an annual meeting? Maybe they don't typically bring with them messengers to vote, and they have that opportunity because they contribute to the cause of the SBC. What would you say would be a reason that they should Really consider being there in the room and vote and hold up their ballots and engage in the conversation that's happening among Southern Baptist churches this summer in Orlando.
1: Yeah, I would encourage pastors to think seriously about what it means to be a Southern Baptist church, to to be a pastor of a church in the SBC. This is something that hit me hard last year. Uh, because I just trusted and people are good people in good places and they're leading things in the right way. And then you wake up and you look and see, wait a minute, how do we get here? Why are we going this direction? And I realize, okay, to be in an association of churches means that we hold the entities that we create accountable. And if the entities that we have created that belong to us are going astray, then I must own some of that responsibility. So I'd say to my fellow SBC pastors, brothers, uh, let's repent of our, lack of proper stewardship of what God has given us. And let's bear fruits of repentance by showing up in Orlando with a sweet spirit, not, not trying to you know, create any problems unnecessarily, but with a resolve that says we want to make sure that the things that the Lord Jesus has entrusted to our churches cooperatively are being handled and guided in the right way. And we need to ask the right questions. We need to talk to the people who are leading those institutions and entities and make sure that they are sensitive to our concerns, to be biblically faithful in every way. And you can't do that if you don't show up. So yes, man, I would encourage all Southern Baptist pastors to show up, to bring messengers with you, to educate your people about what the concerns are. Take advantage of the resources that we've talked about, the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel, by what standard film. Uh, other articles that are being written, the the things that have happened at the G3 conferences and the talks that are online from there, there and come to Orlando e- equipped, educated, and determined to help lead this convention that belongs to us, these entities that belong to us in biblically healthy ways. You can't do it if you're not willing to engage and showing up is step one of engagement.
0: Well, Tom, thank you again for your faithful leadership and for your friendship and ministry. Thank you again for your, your faithfulness just through the years of being a faithful Southern Baptist pastor and someone who has done uh, great work through Founders Ministries to increase the health of churches within the SBC. And, and again, thank you for joining us for this conversation today as well.
1: Well, brother, thank you. I appreciate your friendship and uh, all that you're doing in the kingdom as well, and look forward
0: to future opportunities of fellowship. All right. God bless. As always, through G3, we like to put an emphasis on the importance and the value of the local church. So we encourage you to be much engaged within the life of your local church, to use your giftedness there for the glory of God. We also want to point you to helpful resources through G3. You can find out information through our app. You can, uh, again, watch the latest conference in all of the archives on the free G3 app, as well as visiting g3conference.com to find out more information about the upcoming cruise that we have this upcoming January, as well as the 2021 conference that's going to be centered on christ and so we look forward to seeing you then may god bless you and may god use you for his glory within the context of your local church